Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. spending the next few months talking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We're going to take a little break leading up to Easter in the month of April to make sure our hearts are prepared for Resurrection Sunday and all that goes into uh, that uh, celebration in the Christian life. But outside of that, we are going to be camped out in these three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew for a pretty significant amount of time as we jump into our preaching calendar for 2019. Now, the Sermon on the Mount includes, undoubtedly, some of the most famous teachings and sayings from Jesus. Most historians and scholars and theologians consider this particular sermon, these three chapters in Matthew, to essentially be the epitome of Jesus' teaching and ministry. And what we see is there's actually evidence that the early church highly prioritized these three chapters within the Gospel of Matthew. Other places in the New Testament certainly seem to allude to the teaching of Jesus that's found here. And if we look at the early church writings outside of the Bible, outside of the scriptures, what we see is from the end of the New Testament all the way through the 4th century, the first 250, 300 years of the church, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 are quoted more frequently than any other three chapters of the entire Bible. So the early church clearly hooked into something significant in these words from Jesus that's found here. And I think for us, 2,000 years removed from the teaching and the, the declaration of these words, that we still have much to learn from this sermon. I think, though, as we begin this series and as we begin our exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, we do have to be careful, right? Because, because these teachings of Jesus are so famous, because you have likely heard each and every part of the Sermon on the Mount at some point in time, even if you're not a Christian, non-Christians uphold the Sermon on the Mount as kind of the standard of ethical behavior, there is always a danger that comes in familiarity, right? Because being familiar with something can cause us to miss what's really going on, right? So have you ever had somebody over to your house or given them directions to your house and they show up and they ask you like, hey, tell me about that plant or that tree in your yard that looks really cool. Or they walk in your house, they're like, man, where did this kind of mark on the wall come from? Or what's that painting of? Or, you know, when did you paint this room? And when they're saying this, you honestly have no idea what they're talking about. You ever been there before? If you're a parent, you've been there with the mark on the wall, right? You're like, that's new to me too. I have no idea, right? But sometimes the familiarity of just our own home causes us to not even see what's right in front of us. And so the danger here for the Sermon on the Mount is that we are so familiar with this teaching We're so familiar with the words here in this sermon that it can cause us to miss what is right in front of us all along. Uh, John Stott had this to say about the Sermon on the Mount. This seems like a fitting introduction to us this morning. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood. And then get this, certainly it is the least obeyed. I think that is a perfect setup for the Sermon on the Mount. It is famous, 
but it is extremely difficult to follow to the point where, although we might get the words of Jesus, actually obeying them is a whole nother step in the game that we need to pray and work through as we situate ourselves within this teaching for the next few months. So this morning, uh, with all of that in mind, what I simply want to do is kind of set up the sermon for us. Rather than jumping in and looking at the actual text of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I think it requires us to take a step back for a moment and set the context for this teaching. Because as we're going to see this morning, Matthew is meticulous as an author in his lead up to the sermon to tell us something about Jesus. And I'm afraid if we jump right in, we're going to miss the story that Matthew is telling us. And then we're going to close today by zooming out of the sermon itself and kind of taking the big picture. What is the forest here? What is going on in this teaching? What is the point of it? And then what is the call for us as God's people gathered here as God's family as we consider what this means for our lives today? So this morning will be a little different. We're not going to look at a particular text. We're going to walk through the Gospel of Matthew together. And Lord willing, we're going to land where we land every single week, which is seeing Jesus in all of his beauty and as the center of the story as we cry out to him for salvation and for help today. So here's the main idea. Here's where we're headed. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire biblical story who declares and displays the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. That's simply what I want to set up today, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire biblical story who declares and displays the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to give us fresh eyes to see what might be a familiar text, or for those who are not familiar with this, to simply open our eyes to the good news of the gospel that's contained here in God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we're excited this morning to gather together to humbly submit ourselves to your word. And we're eager this morning to get a fresh glimpse of Jesus, to get a fresh eyes on the good news of the gospel. And so as we turn to the gospel of Matthew this morning and in the months to come, Holy Spirit, may you illuminate from your word, from the scriptures, the truth that is found in it. May you stir up in our hearts a greater worship and a greater faithfulness towards you as a result of what your word has to say. And I pray today as we examine the announcement that the kingdom of heaven has arrived at the coming of Jesus, that we would rightly understand that kingdom, and that we would be so caught up in the awe and the incredible news of the gospel that we would be driven to participate in it even further than before. Jesus, draw us to repentance, and may your word help us do so now. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to kind of work through two big points. Number one, we're going to see how Jesus is, first and foremost, a greater prophet. We're going to do that by walking through the beginning of Matthew. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the greater kingdom that Jesus brings with his coming. So let's begin by talking about this idea of a greater prophet. As I mentioned in the introduction, Matthew is not just haphazardly collecting these stories about Jesus and putting them into an autobiography. Now, Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew seems to intentionally be placed actually as the very first book of the New Testament, right? When the early church is recognizing these are the scriptures that God has given us, Matthew makes perfect sense to be the first book that we turn to when we close the Old Testament and flip the page from Malachi over to Matthew. And here's why. Matthew has the most focus on Israel of the four gospel writers, Matthew has the most focus on the story that has preceded the coming of Jesus. 
And we see that so often, even in these first five chapters of Matthew, six times he will talk about something that happens in Jesus's life or a particular teaching of Christ. And he will say that, quote, this took place to fulfill something that the prophets had talked about. And so Matthew, in so many ways, is the perfect bridge between the Old Testament and the 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist shows up and the story continues. And what's going to happen is if you know your Bible well, and even if you only know it at a cursory glance, the stories that Matthew is telling us in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, they all have a familiar ring to them. We should be reading the stories and saying, you know what, that sounds pretty familiar. Or I think I've heard that before. And that's very intentional on Matthew's piece. So if you have your copy of the scriptures uh, with you, uh, whether hardback or on your phone, either flip back to Matthew chapter 1 or scroll up a little bit. And we're just going to kind of walk through the beginning chapters of Matthew to set the stage here for what Jesus has for us in the Sermon on the Mount. So look at Matthew 1.1 with me. The first words of the New Testament here. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that's a loaded introduction. That has thousands of years of history woven into it. First of all, that word genealogy, right, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that literally in the Greek is the word Genesis. Even from the opening words of Matthew, some alarms should be going off in our head. Just as the very first book of the Bible the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, opens with an account of what happens in the beginning, so too does the first book of the New Testament. It is the Genesis, specifically, of Jesus Christ. That something so cataclysmic has happened at the coming of Jesus that it requires us to stop and acknowledge it. Just as we pause to look at the beginning of creation, guess what? Jesus has come. There is a Genesis that is taking place. And then Matthew links Jesus into the, a, a particular genealogy, a lineage of those who has come before him. So he says that Jesus is first and foremost the son of David. He is the son of David. Now that has some loaded implications in the Old Testament. David is the one, the, the man after God's own heart in the Old Testament, whom God made a covenant with. He said, David, your household will reign over the people of God forever. It will be a never-ending reign that comes from your line. Your children and your children's children and the children that come after that are going to know your family as the king of Israel. And so there was this expectation about this coming Messiah, this coming king who would be born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, which of course is where Matthew chapter 2 is going to tell us that Jesus himself was born, this long-promised Messiah and king. But he doesn't stop at David. He goes back even further to Abraham, that Jesus is in the line of Abraham. Of course, Abraham in the Old Testament is the father of the Israelites. God made a covenant with him that he would be a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, and that through his family, through this nation that God was building, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And so here comes Jesus this new Genesis account in the line of this King David and the one who is coming in the line of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
So this opens with an expectation regarding Jesus. As the story continues, he shifts from David and Abraham to the figure of Moses specifically. Right? Even though Moses doesn't show up in this lineage here of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, he is certainly the backdrop to the story. And Moses was a huge figure in the Old Testament. Right? He's the one who leads the people of Israel out into freedom in the exodus from Egypt. He receives God's law on Mount Sinai. He is the one who delivers the Ten Commandments. He actually gets to deliver them twice, if you remember the little mishap in between the first two. Right? He is this important figure who is the mouthpiece of God. And the reason why Moses is so important is that there's an ancient prophecy back in Deuteronomy 18 about one who would come like Moses. Okay, so let me read for you Deuteronomy 18. This is Moses speaking here to the people. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Mount Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Here's what he says. I, this is the Lord speaking, will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command you. And there is expectation at the time of Jesus that someone was coming. Someone who is promised here in Deuteronomy who would be the very mouthpiece of God. The one who would lead his people into greater faithfulness. The one who would be like Moses, only greater than Moses was coming. And then Matthew is going to connect the dots for us in a brilliant way. You see, it kind of reminds me like movies today. If you go to the movie theater, like no one is making new movies today, right? Have you guys noticed this? Like it's either the 30th movie in the Marvel collection. I think DC is still trying. I don't know why to ask Joseph on that. Um, it's not as good as the movies, right? And then there is all of these remakes of movies from like my childhood, right? Are there any other movies coming out right now? You guys need to tell me because it feels like it's the same movies over and over and over again. Right, well, what we're going to see here in Matthew, it's the same stories over and over again, but Matthew has a very specific point in that. So just look briefly with me at this. Look at chapter 2. Right, Jesus, his birth is promised. Right, he's got this visit of the wise men who come, and as he is born, the virgin birth is promised. It takes place. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 16, and something tragic happens. Right, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained by the wise men. So we have the birth of this prominent figure, and then we have tragedy, where Herod, in a fit of anger and rage, orders that all of these baby boys under the age of two be murdered. Well, that story it's not the first time that shows up in the scriptures, right? There is another time in the scriptures where a wicked pagan king, out of anger, orders that baby boys be killed. And that connects us back to Moses, right? Pharaoh, as the people of Israel are expanding in Egypt, though they are enslaved, in a fit of anger, orders that the baby boys be killed out of risk to protect his own throne. This is the context that Jesus is born into, 
And this was the context that Moses was born into. And both of them miraculously are spared by the Lord. Jesus' father is warned in a dream to go and travel away. Moses is floated down the river in the basket and is saved at the end of that. There is a similarity between the birth stories. Well, as this murderous activity is being carried out, we see in chapter 2, verse 13, that Jesus and his family flee of all places to guess where? Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Moses, the one who was born in Egypt, but then also flees from Egypt and returns later in his life. There's a connection geographically between these two. Moses, who returns to Egypt to set his people free from enslavement to Pharaoh, Jesus' family travels to Egypt and then returns to Nazareth. We'll flip ahead to verse three, chapter 3. We see John the Baptist is on the scene, and we see this baptism of Jesus take place. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus, the Son of God, who will live a perfect, sinless life, passes through the waters of baptism. He goes down into the water, is raised up. God declares for all who are there to hear, this is my beloved son. And again, the story should sound familiar. Because don't forget, when the Israelites are on their way out of Egypt, what's the final climactic thing that must occur? Right, they themselves have to pass through the waters. They themselves, as they're fleeing, they turn around Pharaoh has changed his mind again. They're chasing after him. The Lord miraculously parts the Red Sea, and the people of God go through the waters. And those waters represented at the same time death and life. It's life for God's people and death for those who are opposed to God and his kingdom. And the same thing happens in baptism, isn't it? We are, and when we baptize somebody, they're being buried with Christ. Their old life is dying with Jesus, but there's a resurrection that takes place. And so this passing through the waters is experienced by both. But then, this is where it gets so obvious. Don't miss the next verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into, of all places, the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, ready for the understatement in all the Bible, he was hungry. Amen, right? 40 days, 40 nights, no food, he is hungry. Well, it's not a coincidence that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, right? The people of Israel go through their waters of baptism. They get to the other side and they are led by the Spirit through the wilderness for 40 years. And then don't miss the temptation that the devil gives to Jesus. Keep going in chapter 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember that the temptation in the wilderness for the Israelites was manna. It was bread from heaven. 
it was a grumbling and a complaining about this bread that God miraculously provided, but yet they wanted more or they wanted something different. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were not satisfied. And so what we see is that Matthew is walking the same story of the people of Israel led by Moses with Jesus going through the very same things. But you know what happens in the temptation? Jesus, instead of grumbling and complaining, he successfully resists the temptation of the devil. Look at verse 4. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then he tempts him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to, to be saved. And Jesus, again, quotes scriptures and says, we will not put the Lord our God to the test. Satan says, if you'll just bow down to me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, as some authors have pointed out, listen to the connection between Jesus and the people of Israel here. Here's what Andrew Wilson says. He says, like Israel, Jesus has a lengthy period of wandering in the desert. The spirit leads him into a dry and barren place in which he has to trust God for the provision of bread, resist evil, and stand on the testimony of scripture. The specific temptations echo those that unraveled Israel, grumbling about the lack of food, testing God by demanding a miracle, bowing down to false gods and seizing his inheritance before it was time. It was no coincidence that in all three of these temptations, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, the sermon Moses preached to remind Israel of their need for obedience. But Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. For all of our familiarities with the Exodus story in scripture, we have never seen this before. The all-too-familiar biblical melody of failures has been transformed and turned into a song of hope. Isn't that a beautiful reflection on Jesus? See, the story is the same with one big difference. The story over and over again was of the failure of temptation. Adam and Eve failed their temptation with food in the garden. The Israelites fail their temptation in the wilderness. You and I fail our temptations when the enemy comes and dangles some things before us that we follow. But Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who has come to set his people free, succeeds. This is a different melody to the same story. I mean, do you feel the story building? It's rising to a crescendo of sorts. Right over and over again where the story led to ruin and sin and destruction, the script is being rewritten. Right, Hope is bursting through. Light is shining into the darkness. And then Jesus begins his ministry. And according to Matthew, verses 13 here, he says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that he would go to a land of promise, and he would bring with him the good news of the kingdom of God. Just as the Israelites are led to the promised land, Jesus goes to a land that was promised from Isaiah and proclaims good news. And then from there, we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And what he's going to talk about on this mountain 
are the very things that Moses received on his mountain in Mount Sinai. He quotes the very Ten Commandments that were given to Moses and then shows us the real heart and the real meaning behind them, the intention behind the law of God. I hope you see this is not incidental. This is not a coincidence. And by the way, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize what's here. These are real stories that happened. This is a real historical account. But what Matthew is trying to do is say, hey, you've heard this story. Wake up. Don't miss it. It's different this time. Someone is going to succeed where all others have failed. Matthew is trying to say that Jesus is not only the continuation of the story, he is the fulfillment of the biblical story up to this point. Jesus is the greater prophet than Moses that has been promised. He is the greater redeemer. And just as Moses led the people of Israel in the Exodus out from Egypt, so too is Jesus leading the captives on another kind of Exodus. Right? Moses rescued Israel from bondage and physical slavery in Egypt. But Jesus, as the greater Moses, comes to rescue his people from their bondage to sin and to the devil. Right? Moses cries out, let my people go to an evil tyrant king who is set against God and his people. And Jesus does the same thing for us, only on a far greater scale. Right? Don't miss this. While Moses reluctantly asks Pharaoh to let his people go, Jesus comes and he stares down sin, death, evil, and Satan. And he says, let my people go. Let them go. And then he indeed sets the captives free. Right? He accomplishes the exodus for us through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death on the cross, where he dies in our place. And then three days later, the most decisive sign of victory, the tomb is empty. He is raised from the dead. He has won the victory. Jesus stares at the greatest tyrant against God. He stares at the greatest enemy against God's people. And he says, you will not have the last word. My people will be set free. Matthew 1, 21 is kind of the thesis statement for the whole gospel. The angel here is talking to Joseph and he says about Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That word from is a play of words on Exodus. It's a taking away of our sins. It is a removal of them. There is a separation. Just as the Israelites separated from Egypt, so too in the good news of the gospel are we separated from our sins. We are removed from them. And so, brothers and sisters, before we even jump into the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we have to consider our own participation in this story. Right? We are all in need of this rescuing. We are all in need of this Redeemer. We need this exodus away from our sins, a turning from them, and a running to our Savior. And we have to deal with this before we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not saying this. It's not saying, hey, if you live your life this way, then you'll become a Christian. It is not saying, if you live this way, then you'll earn God's favor. Then you'll earn the blessing. Then you'll participate in the kingdom of heaven. No, no, instead, 
The sermon says, because you have been saved from your sins, because you have been a recipient of this redemption, because you have been a recipient of the exodus that Jesus has led, this is how you should live. And the difference there is critical. The difference there is critical. Even if we tried to live out the demands of this sermon, the ethical and the moral standard that is there is just impossible for us outside of the intervening grace of God. So here this morning, we ought to all ask ourselves, am I a recipient of that? Have I put my faith in Christ? Have I received that exodus of my sins? They've been taken far away from me. As the psalmist says, and we looked at a few weeks ago, my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. If we don't deal with that, first and foremost, the Sermon on the Mount is going to be suffocating. It's going to be impossible to follow. It will, be, it will put demands on our lives that will be enslaving. But don't forget, Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to lead us into life and life abundant. He has come to lead us on an exodus. So this morning, is that your story? Are you participating in it? Because don't forget, just like the Israelites were unworthy, so too are we unworthy, but God's grace goes further. God comes in the person of Christ and he extends a free offer of this freedom. We simply respond by giving our all to him in faith. I'm trusting you, I'm not trusting in myself. So Jesus is the hero of the story. He is the hero of the Sermon on the Mount and we have to fight to remember that as we work through this. Well, as we see the true nature and the true identity of this greater prophet, it leads us to see this greater kingdom that is coming. If you look back in chapter 4, verse 17 is really the summary of Jesus' ministry. It's going to set us up for the sermon. After he goes to these places that are promised and he tells them of the good news of the gospel, it says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is what we've entitled our sermon series for the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven is the key phrase in the gospel of Matthew. He uses it over 30 times and even more just in a shorthand reference. Sometimes he'll call it the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus begins his ministry after all that led up to what we just worked through. And he announces, guess what? The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven has broken into our world. And that requires a little further setup because this kingdom sure doesn't look like all the other kingdoms of the world, right? It looks awful different than what they would have associated as kingdom. But it's important to know Jesus doesn't come merely to be a teacher. He doesn't come merely to be a prophet. He doesn't come merely to tell us what God expects of us. No, Jesus comes as a king. You know who has the right to declare the kingdom is here? The king. If somebody besides the king is saying it, I've got reason to doubt it. But until the king comes and says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here, that's when we know definitively something has changed. And notice what goes with the kingdom, by the way. Do you see what Jesus says? The kingdom of heaven is here, so he says, therefore, repent. The first thing we realize about the kingdom of heaven is that we are unfit to enter it. We are unfit to enter it as we simply come to Jesus. Something must take place for us to be participants in this because jesus once again is leading a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world 
he is taking broken sinners, broken vessels, those who are in desperate need of a savior, and he's wrapping them up in his arms. He's setting them free from their sin. He's saying, these people right here who are in my kingdom, this is how you get to see it. As the rule and reign of King Jesus is experienced over the lives of his people, that is where the kingdom of heaven is. And so those who are in the kingdom are trying to apply the rule and reign of King Jesus over all of life. And there is always going to be a tension in this. Because you know what this kingdom looks like to the world? It looks upside down. It looks like it's a little bit off its center. Right? It looks like, is that really what a kingdom is supposed to be like? Because that doesn't feel like the kingdoms that I know. It looks like it is completely upside down. Right, I remember when my wife and I were dating, we used to do a lot of puzzles together because I'm an old soul. Um, I can't speak for Molly, but I'm, I'm an old soul. So we would do these puzzles together. And sometimes um, when you were put, put this scene together, oftentimes there'd be like a lake and a reflection, right? And you're looking at the box and you're looking at the pieces. And as you're putting it together, you're kind of looking at it a little confused, right? Like, is this really the right way up? Is this the way it's supposed to go? And then how do you actually realize that? You either cheat and look at the box fully, or you actually begin to put more pieces in play. You get to see, oh, that's not actually the building. That's a reflection that's upside down of what's actually there, right? And so what seems so upside down to us is actually right side up, right? God's the one who has created all things. He has sent Jesus on a rescue mission. When Jesus comes and declares the kingdom is here, though it feels upside down to us, It's actually right side up. I love what N.T. Wright says about this. He says, The life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God always intended. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense of God's promised future, because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is in fact the right way up. Right, Jesus announces his kingdom. Think of the kingdoms of this world. Power, might, supremacy. You build the biggest house that you possibly can, so that people know where the king lives, right? You build statues to make sure that people are reminded who is in charge, right? You create pledges, you gather an army. Those are the things that the kingdom, kingdoms of the earth conjure up. You know what Jesus says about the kingdom? Here's a sampling from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in this kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who are persecuted, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, those in this kingdom rejoice in being persecuted. Those in this kingdom, when they experience a slap on the right cheek, they turn and offer the other as well. Those in this kingdom, if anyone would take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone is forcing you to go one mile, you go two with them. Right, in this kingdom... The citizens love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. The citizens in this kingdom are generous to those in need without ever seeking any recognition for being generous. Those in this kingdom don't lay up treasures here on earth 
but they lay up treasures in heaven. And those in this kingdom don't judge others before recognizing that they have a giant two-by-four in their own eye before they remove the little speck from their brother's or their sister's eye. That's the kingdom of heaven. How does that strike you? Does that feel a little bit upside down? It does to me, right? But the beautiful call on us, God's people, the church, is that we get to fight together to believe that this is actually the right way up, that this is actually the way that we're supposed to live, right? That as we step into this kingdom as citizens, underneath the rule and reign of King Jesus, that we actually get to experience life as it's intended for us as we wait for this kingdom in its fullness. But that's going to be hard. That is countercultural. That is difficult for us to inhabit and to live within. But the Sermon on the Mount answers the question that Francis Schaeffer asked over 40 years ago. When he thinks about Jesus, the next question we should ask is, how should we then live? How should we then live? If Jesus really came, if he's really led us on an exodus away from our sins, if we are new creations brought into the new family of God, how then should we live? The Sermon on the Mount answers that question. The Sermon on the Mount draws us into a kingdom that is far bigger than us, that is broken into this world at the coming of Jesus and will come again at its fullness when Jesus returns. And so the kingdom focuses on what life is like in between the comings of Jesus. So the sermon is going to talk about what it means to truly flourish, right? The Beatitudes that Pastor Pat's going to preach through next week talk about this human flourishing that are viewed as utterly ridiculous by the world around us. But if we want to know what are we supposed to be following, right? What vision for our lives are we drawn to and our actions and our affections are following? Well, it's the Beatitudes. It's this way of life that feels upside down where those who are poor, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are persecuted are actually blessed. They're the ones who receive the blessing of the kingdom. The this, this sermon answers this question. The sermon is going to tell us about true righteousness. It warns about hypocrisy over and over again, but this is not the hypocrisy that we think, right? We think the hypocrite is the one who is telling everybody not to commit adultery and they themselves are committing adultery. We think hypocrisy is when people, when someone maybe on a stage invites people to be generous and to give to the poor while they themselves are stealing and are greedy at their core. That's not the hypocrisy that's talked about. The hypocrisy here is seen in this challenge where Jesus says, if you even look at a person with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. If you're even angry with your brother or sister, you've already committed murder. The hypocrisy that Jesus warns about is this lack of integrity within ourselves, where we might do the right things, but we're not the right people who are doing them. We might not commit adultery, but our hearts are full of lust. We might not be murdering, but we're full of anger and bitterness, right? Jesus is saying, don't be like those who just obey, but internally haven't been transformed by the gospel. Don't be like the hypocrites who are out here flaunting their prayers for all to hear, but yet never get in their closets and pray, right? It's going to be a challenging push for us, but true righteousness is a whole person activity. And then the sermon just moves into practical concerns, it talks about everything from money to anxiety to prayer to judging others. It talks about marriage, fasting. Right? And in all of this, the center of it is the Lord's Prayer. 
for the central petition in that is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which pushes back against the tug in each of our hearts where we cry, no, no, my kingdom come, my will be done, right? The sermon is constantly pushing back on us. And it's saying you need to rightly worship King Jesus. We need to rightly inhabit his kingdom. But as we close, the sermon is always going to set up a sort of tension within us. And I don't want us to miss this this morning. You see, the tension that the sermon is going to bring is that we will, in so many ways, feel guilt and condemnation as we jump into this. We will, in so many ways, be reminded that we don't actually live like this very often. But it's in that guilt and condemnation that we also are going to find ourselves drawn to want to live this way. I think if you presented this to somebody, Jesus is just ethics for life. You gave them no information on who Jesus is, didn't tell them it was from the Bible. I think they'd be drawn to this. I think they'd want to live this way. There's something compelling about the Sermon on the Mount that we are invited into. And so at the same time that we feel this guilt and condemnation, we also feel this pull to, man, I really want this. I want to obey it. And it's in that tension, brothers and sisters, that I think the Lord wants us. It is in that tension where we don't just see the ethical demands, but we see that the sermon is pointing us to the power to actually live this out. And you know what the power is? The power is Jesus. The power is to, in the tension of I can't live this out, but I want to, remember who the hero of the story is. The power to live this out is to remember that Jesus, the one who is saving us, the one whom we are being transformed into his image, one degree of glory from the next, he is the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. He is the one who has lived this perfectly, and he is the one who is making us new. He is the one who is transforming us and inviting us to participate. And it's in that tension, brothers and sisters, that we get to worship Jesus. We get to own our sins and say, Jesus, I need to be reminded that you've set me free. I need to be reminded of the exodus that you have led for your people. But at the same time, I need, alongside my brothers and sisters, to inhabit this kingdom. I want to live within it. And so we fight together as we look to Jesus to do so. Let me close with this quote from a commentator named A.M. Hunter. He says this. He says, after 1,900 years, the Sermon on the Mount still haunts men. They may praise it as Gandhi did, or like Nietzsche, they may curse it. They cannot ignore it. Its words are winged words, quick and powerful to rebuke, to challenge, and to inspire. And though some turn from it in despair, it continues, like some mighty magnetic mountain to attract to itself the greatest spirits of our race, so that if some worldwide vote were taken, there is little doubt that men would account it the most searching and most powerful utterance we possess on what concerns the moral life. The sermon should haunt us in some way, but it should drive us to our Savior. So this morning, as we consider and we prepare our hearts to jump into this series, we cannot ignore it. We cannot ignore it, but... My hope and prayer is that we never turn from it in despair. May we never turn from it in despair, but instead, may we turn to our Savior. May we turn to the one who has redeemed us. May we turn to the one who has set us free. 
And may we, as we inhabit this kingdom, apply the rule and reign of our gracious King Jesus over all of our life. The sermon is going to press us to do that over and over and over again. But let us not forget Jesus is the hero. He is the one who has succeeded where all others are failed. So this morning, before we jump into this, I want to make sure we're right before him. Is he the hero of your life? Is he the hero of your story? If not, the invitation is there this morning to turn to our gracious king who has graciously given his life away so that we might have it and have it abundantly. Let's pray.